<clears throat> so welcome to the third of our, our Wolfson Climate Series. Um, it's a huge honor today to introduce to you Professor Thomas Stocker. He's a professor of climate and environmental physics at the University of Bern. He certainly traveled the world during his career. He started out, I think, at ETH or ETH, um, then moved to UCL Department of Math. So he hasn't just crossed disciplines, or countries, he's crossed disciplines as well. Um, so he was a CERC visiting research fellow at UCL in the Department of Maths. He then went to uh, McGill uh, over in Canada before moving to Lamont to work with Wally Broker, perhaps the sort of godfather of paleoclimatology. And then he uh, moved back to Bern, where he's been since 1993. Um, like so many of the speakers in this series, he's had, got too many uh, honors to, to mention, but he's been made a fellow of the American Geophysical Union, um, a fellow of the American Meteorological Society. Um, he's received the Hans Erschke Medal of the EGU and the Descartes Prize. Um, and he's really well known for perhaps two strands of research. So both his work um, detailing past climates and their associated gases from ice cores, um, but also for an intermediate level, or level of uh, intermediate level modeling of, of uh, climate in the past system. Um, at the moment, he's the co-chair of Working Group 1 for the fifth assessment report of the IPCC. Um, so he's really uh, become perhaps a reasonable voice of the scientific community for conveying climate change. And that's what I, I hope to hear from Thomas today. And it's a huge honor to welcome him here to Wolfson. Thank you. Rose, for these kind words, I think there are a few too many of these awards, so uh, we'll check that back. So it's an honor to be here. And since this is a, a, a climate change series, I thought I would uh, just uh, rid myself of the first question that climatologists or people concerned with climate change are being asked. And this is, how hot was the past summer? Um, summer 2011. And we know from research now that 2011 was not the hottest summer. Although it was hot in Central Europe, but uh, it was not the hot hottest summers in the past 500 years. Rather, what we are interested in terms of statistics is an information like this the five coldest summers of the past 500 years all occurred before 1924. And the five hottest summers all occurred after 2001. So we don't want to comment on individual months, but we are interested in statistics. And this is, I think, a very small example how to communicate climate change. We should not really comment on individual events such as a hot April or a hot summer 2003, although uh, scientists actually are now capable to attribute at least part of such change of individual summers. But I think the message is much stronger if we try to convey information on the statistics and the change in statistics. 
In climate change communication, uh, finally we've made it into the movies and that's really problematic because that is definitely the location where the facts have disappeared. Here you see uh, an advertisement for a movie that came out, uh, I think, 2005 or 6, the day after tomorrow, which in an interesting uh, string packed together many scientific uh, findings, uh, constrained the time scale down to a few days or weeks and made a nice Hollywood story out of it. Of course, this is no longer a fact, what you see here. And when it comes to communicating climate change science, we want to stick with the facts. I want to share with you a few thoughts on this because, uh, as Rose uh, mentioned, uh, uh, apart from my uh, activity as a scientist at the University of Bern, in the past few years I've become more and more busy and occupied with this second uh, job that I have assumed in 2008, and that is leading one of the working groups of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And there, we are confronted really with issues of, converse, uh, of uh, communication of complex scientific results. And the idea for this lecture actually started when the discussions really were hot. And uh, I'm in a country here where climate change discussions happen very hot and sometimes also very hostile and to the persons. I want to address four points here. The climate change issue as a naturally difficult topic. And I would like then to proceed to show you the four challenges that are associated with communication of complex scientific topics. I then would like to explain to you the specific mandate in IPCC in order for you to understand that when you hear communications from this panel uh, to sort of gauge what we say and why we say it sometimes in contorted ways, some people may say. I will end with a few conclusions. Now, this is a schematic depiction of the climate system. Probably you've seen such a graph already before in this lecture series, but it's good to look at it every once in a while to uh, be aware of the fact that we are looking at an extremely complex system which uh, consists of a number of important spheres which talk to one another. For example, the hydrosphere, the ocean, everything that is associated with water, both in the ocean but also in the atmosphere. So, for example, clouds are part of the hydrosphere. The cryosphere, the ice sheets, sea ice, the frozen water, which are extremely important and efficient drivers when it comes, for example, to understand uh, paleoclimate, past climate, for example, the cycle of ice ages. We also have the atmosphere, of course, which is basically the layer through which the most important energy source of our climate system, and that is the sun, has to pass through. And that is releasing many complex processes which we are still about to discover in climate science. There is the biosphere, which is important to consider both on land but also in the ocean. Important to consider if you want to understand changes in carbon dioxide concentration. 
And then there is this fear here, which has played an increasing role in the past decades and century, and that is the anthroposphere, man's sphere, the influence of man on the climate system. That has started well before the emission of greenhouse gases, for example, through changes of land, land use, clearing, etc. As a physicist, I usually do these things first. I ask the question, what are the typical timescales that I have to consider in a problem? What are the typical space scales? And if you look at that, for example, the droplet in a cloud or the ice crystal, which is the starting point for a cloud, and as we know, clouds are really important on a global level for climate and climate change, we are concerned with micrometer scales. But if you look at large-scale global changes, for example, changes in the ocean circulation, in the wind belts, and other changes, the large ice sheets, for example, then we are on the order of millions of meters. And you see, we span about 13 orders of magnitude, which are relevant in the, in the space scales. In the time scales, it's even longer, 19 orders of magnitude. From microseconds, again, the clouds would serve as a good example. But then to this guy here, 10 to the 13 seconds, that's about the length of an ice age. I can tell you we're interested in the sequence of ice ages. So you see, both time scales and spatial scales span a vast range which needs to be considered, which ultimately needs to be understood quantitatively. So it's an increasingly complex system that we are dealing with, and we want to understand not only the working of that system, but its response to small, seemingly small changes in the forcing or in the atmospheric gas composition. There are five points that make this climate change problem really unique. There are no desktop experiments. I cannot go into the lab and actually simulate climate change. I may be able perhaps to simulate certain aspects of it, but not the entire system. Also, it's difficult to point to a single smoking gun when you talk about climate change. We have many facets of changes that we can measure in all the compartments that I've shown you of the climate system. There is not a single smoking gun. Some say climate is always changing, and that is true, but it's too short of a statement. Of course, we want to know the reasons why climate is changing. An old statement, we experience weather, not climate. So, as human beings, we are not familiar with the concept of climate, of long-term changes in our day-to-day experiences. And finally, and this is a true challenge for us scientists working in this area, everybody has an opinion on climate. It's an easy topic to engage in a reception or in a meeting with everybody. You can always talk about it. That's an advantage sometimes I enjoy. If I go out with my high-energy physicist colleagues, they have a harder time to engage in such discussions. Anyways, I think it's useful to 
um, think about how science in certain very difficult and contended topics has evolved and how much time it has actually taken in the past to overcome old ideas and ingrained concepts. So I've listed here a few examples of old paradigms and the scientific facts. And I think climate change, the climate change issue, is actually at the end of this string that I'm going to show you. Of course, Copernicus in 1543, uh, just uh, shortly before uh, his uh, death, he published uh, the book where he put forward evidence that, in fact, the Earth is not the center of the universe. And the scientific fact is that the Earth orbits around the sun. Einstein is another famous example with his general relativity in 1915 that space and time are not absolute dimensions, but matter and energy modify space-time. One paradigm shift is, that is very important for us in climate science is actually the next one. It's been long thought that nature is deterministic, that you can write down an equation, a differential equation, and then from then on you just calculate forward. And once you have considered all the processes that are relevant, you're actually done and you have predictive power. This concept was clearly brushed away in 1927 when the uncertainty principle by Heisenberg was found for the atomic, the microscopic level of nature. But there is a similar thing on the macroscopic level, and that is the deterministic, the existence of deterministic chaos. So even in the presence of nice differential equations that describe processes, due to the fact that they are nonlinear, they rob us of the possibility to make long-term predictions. That was in 1963, and you see it took a long time from the early starts of using differential equations to explain natural phenomena to the insight that there are certain limits to that prediction. This was a landmark paper by Ed Lorenz, which was published in 1963. So the question now is, when is there a shift from the old paradigm that climate changes are only due to natural processes to actually a common, a common recognition by everybody, uncontended, that humans are modifying global climate. I think many people actually have received this message from the science by now. But if you poll, uh, if you poll people, especially in the United States of America, it's depressing to see how these polls fluctuate between 64% of people who are convinced and um, actually accept the facts of science that man is changing climate now uh, to levels as low as 24% in the past few years where um, people are still convinced that man is changing climate. So I think it's still a back and forth and it's not really yet settled really with the people to accept that uh, fact. 
Let me now show you the four challenges that I think we have specifically in communicating climate science results. The first challenge is what I call the widening gap. On the left, I have shown here a wedge that indicates science literacy. So we go from small literacy to large literacy. And on the right, I show the communication literacy. On the left, we have the public. On the right, the scientists. I would say this is the situation, this has been the situation uh, maybe a hundred years ago or so where science was really only for the privileged people and there wasn't really uh, a wide appreciation of the science and wide access to the public, to everybody, irrespective of wealth, uh, to scientific information. Perhaps a hundred years ago or so, scientists didn't really worry about communication to the broad public. There was an important breed of people here in between who established the link between these two communities. And these are the science journalists. They are enjoying an education in science, but they are able then to transport the results due to their education to the public. If you now proceed in time, I think it's fair to say that in science we have made struggles to step out of the ivory tower and to improve on our communication literacy. And the public also, public education, starting in primary school, right up to the A-levels. Science education has been really a priority in the second part of the 20th century. That has led to an approach to a coming together of the two areas. Science journalists, um, I've here plotted a little bit a thinner bar, and if we proceed in time, you see that things are still okay. People get together, they have science literacy, they can obtain information from the internet. Uh, we go out, lecture, etc. So communication is strong. But I think what has happened in the past few years is really that we've lost many of the science journalists. We've lost many pages, actually, in the journals, in the newspapers. That explains science results. It has no longer been popular to have a sick and um, healthy science um, part in a daily newspaper, but this has sort of been pushed to the fringes. That's at least what I realize um, in Switzerland, but I assume that is the case elsewhere, They're just the same. And what you see here is that what has been a gap that has been closing for many years, I believe that this gap has become wider Science is no longer present to the level it has been before in um, serious newspapers. And we have missed, we have lost an important part of the communication chain, and that is the science journalists. The second cha challenge that we are facing is that there are many, many sources of information where you can find 
scientific and sometimes less scientific information on a topic such as climate change. Of course, we have the classical conveyors of information such as the scientific publications, the lectures, international assessment, for example, the IPCC, but also increasingly the media, press, TV, radio, movies, as I've mentioned, and new breeds such as social media, Facebooks and blogs, where climate change issues have been discussed for um, many, many times. Science popularizations are also conveyors of information. And what has recently um, been seen, certainly in the topic of climate change, because it has a political uh, aspect and dimension, is position papers on climate change science by so-called think tanks. Don't know the situation here in uh, Great Britain, but certainly in the United States there are a number of such think tanks, and even in Switzerland we have such think tanks which once in a while uh, issue statements and uh, position papers on climate change. Usually, I think the scientists are familiar with these three conveyors of information. And we are only slowly getting used to the others. But I think we need to face the challenge and be active in such medias as well. The third challenge, especially in the climate change discussion, is how do we deal with the uncertainty that is inherent to any scientific endeavor? How do we inform about it? But first of all, how do we determine uncertainty? Since we often also can communicate with um, graphics, with diagrams, we also need to understand how to display uncertainty. And finally, because we are crafting text, for example, for newspapers and other um, uh, conveyors of information, how can we credibly and consistently formulate uncertainty? I give you here one example. Uh, this is from a recent guidance note that uh, has been established prior to the writing of the fifth assessment report of the IPCC. How <clears throat> uncertainty is actually evolving through the chain of scientific evidence. I take the example of climate model results for climate projections. There are various sources of information. For example, a, a large um, effort by the scientific community to compare various models and to extract robust information from a whole generation of models. This gives you a whole range of, for example, temperature changes in the 21st century. But there are other sources of information that influence this first information. That is, for example, if you perturb your climate models, if you use climate models and change parameters a little bit to explore parameter space, that will give you a further indication on the sensitivity of your projection. 
I call that a range from parameter choice. But you can also think of other types of models, models of, for example, reduced complexity. They also are used for climate change projection, and they will, again, yield a range of projections which are on the table here. And then, finally, you have models that consider new elements of the climate system, such as, for example, the carbon cycle, which is known to react to the warming, and that, again, influences these projections. So you have actually from various sources of different climate models and setup of experiments information that you need to synthesize. What you can see here is that while the model simulations are kind of a yielding numbers where you can uh, do statistics over them, when it comes to combining the information uh, from the different um, experiments, what you then need is expert judgment. And finally, you're challenged to actually make a statement, a synthesis statement, with an uncertainty range that is faithful to all these activities that are going on in the scientific community. For example, the question how to display uncertainty, um, this is a result of long discussions we had during the fourth assessment report, which was published in 2007. It shows you the increase of global mean temperature over the 21st century, according to different scenarios. I don't want to go into the detail, but I want to show you how we chose at that time to display uncertainty. I'm not claiming this is an ideal way, but it is the way we chose at the time. So, for example, here you see the time series of temperature increase over the 21st century, and you also see some ranges uh, in these time series which indicate the uncertainties from the different models that participated in these calculations. Not only the models were um, uh, used, but also different scenarios were used, as you can see here. Uh, that is the indication of the temperature change for six individual scenarios. We indicated with the bars. When we showed this figure to the policymakers, they were not very happy. They said, oh, this is far too complex. We only want one temperature range. And couldn't you please provide us with the lowest uh, temperature increase and the highest temperature increase, and then we would be quite happy. They were looking for a simple statement, 1.1 to 6.4 degrees Celsius warming by the end of the 21st century. We actually refused to do that because we wanted to make the statement that the temperature change is intimately linked to the scenario, the emission scenario of greenhouse gas that you are using. And therefore, in this report, which was published in 2004, you will not find a single unified temperature range for climate change uh, in the 21st century. I think it's important as a scientist to keep a certain level of complexity and not to become simpler, even if there is pressure by the public to convey a very simple uh, result. As simple as possible, but not more.
We do have some language by which we try to quantify the uncertainty. There is first a qualitative expression of uncertainty where we kind of assess the level of agreement in the scientific literature on a certain issue. But also, we assess the amount and the quality of the evidence. So it's as if you have two dimensions, one on agreement and one on evidence. And if you have high agreement and strong evidence, of course, this increases your confidence. And the combination of the two we call confidence, and confidence is conveyed in five levels from very low confidence, low confidence, medium, up to very high confidence. But to arrive at this statement of we have very high confidence in something, you have to have done the assessment of the level of agreement that is available in the scientific studies and the amount and quality of evidence. But of course, we also want to be quantitative. And here we use the concept of likelihood, where, for example, you try to determine probability density functions out of uh, whole ensemble simulations of climate models. And depending on the statement that you can make, uh, you could then assign certain reserved or calibrated words to uh, certain levels of likelihood. For example, in IPCC, we use virtually certain if something is more than 99% or likely if it exceeds 66%. So you see here, this is an attempt to translate a mathematical quantification into language Language which is then reserved in these documents for this very purpose. And you see here I have put these words in italics, as you will find them in those texts as well, indicating, yes, the writer, the author of that statement really um, intended to convey this quantified information. The fourth challenge is the challenge to be precise but not using technical language. And here I have a few um, examples from an inspiring article which was published in Physics Today last year by uh, Richard Somerville and Susan Hassel. Scientific terms to us are day-to-day -day language. And if we talk about the positive feedback or if we talk about theory or uncertainty or bias or scheme, there's nothing to it. Uh, we know what we mean by this, and we assume automatically that the receiver of the information also does. But that's not quite true. Um, the public meaning of positive feedback could perhaps be good response. And indeed, if uh, I go back and uh, people ask me, well, uh, how was uh, Oxford? Uh, I may say I got positive feedback. It could be praise, theory. People can say, well, if this is a theory only, it's not more than a hunch or even a speculation. If I talk about uncertainty in projections, this guy is just ignorant. Or if I say, well, the models actually do have a bias, for example, in global mean temperature. That could be interpreted as a distortion or even a political motive. 
and the scheme, you know about that, a devious plot. So one could actually come up with some better choices if you're really sensitive about the language, where you would say a self-reinforcing cycle for the positive feedback. You would uh, uh, replace theory by scientific understanding. You would replace uncertainty by range, and so forth. So I think we have to develop, as scientists, a sensorium for technical language and to listen once in a while how the public actually may interpret certain terms we are very familiar with. Let me now talk about IPCC, because IPCC here in this whole communication of climate change um, plays a fundamental role in that <clears throat> IPCC involves many hundreds of scientists around the world and if we come up with a formulation, these formulations are actually uh, communicated uh, in wide circles and may even uh, be considered by policymakers. Since there have been many misunderstandings on what IPCC is, uh, especially through the communication and through the media, but also through blogs, etc., I think I take the opportunity here to explain you a little bit about this. It's useful to go back to the guiding document, the principles governing IPCC work. And in there, it simply says that our role is to assess on a comprehensive, objective, open and transparent basis the scientific and technical and socioeconomic information that is relevant to understand climate change. But also, the IPCC reports, and this is really an important part of this article too, should be neutral with respect to policy. And every time I'm together with the lead authors, I remind them of this little phrase because um, in the past we've experienced that uh, once in a while when you communicate results and statements of IPCC, they come across in a policy prescriptive manner or are interpreted by the receiver as a policy prescriptive manner. I've shown you the different scenarios. We are talking in what if language. In other words, if you choose this, you receive this with an uncertainty. But it's useful to remind ourselves, in specifically also the leadership of IPCC, that these reports and statements should be neutral with respect to policy. So, for example, a two-degree target has never been actually formulated by IPCC. That has been created in a different uh, circle, and that is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, the so-called conference of the parties where negotiations are carried out for uh, climate-related uh, protocols and uh, agreements. IPCC is firmly rooted in the scientific community. For example, Working Group 1 currently has 258 enlisted authors and review editors. A total number across the three working groups is 800. And 46. So this is a sizable number. It's not a small club of people who is actually performing this assessment. It's a large number of active scientists <clears throat> around the world. 
including the developing world, um, who contribute to these assessments. Four assessments have already been published. The first assessment in 1990, 1995, 2001, and the last one in 2007. I'd like to show you on this next transparency the complexity of the process through which we are going. And the take-home message of this slide will only be we go back many times to the experts we, to receive review comments and to amend and improve our reports until they become public. So the whole thing started in 2008 with the election of the working groups. This election is actually uh, done by the governments. The scoping or the outline of the assessment, in other words, what should be looked at uh, in the assessment, is a product both of the scientific community, the lead authors of the working groups, and some government representatives who actually um, express their view, what in their view would be interesting and important to learn more about. This coping outline then uh, goes through an approval process, and after this approval process, a nomination and selection of the lead authors takes place. These lead authors then, based on this scoping document, start their assessment by drafting a so-called zero-order draft, which goes out to the scientific community for informal review. That has taken place early in 2011 for our working group. Out of the zero-order draft, taking into account these very valuable comments that we have received in this informal review, we then crafted a first-order draft which was completed um, <clears throat> end of 2011 and went through a worldwide expert review. This expert review has produced 21,400 comments that need to be considered. Not every comment is reasonable, I can tell you. There are comments sometimes that say, oh, it's been long known that there is no anthropogenic climate change, please change your text accordingly. And you get that comment many times. But uh, apart from these comments, there are indeed very valuable comments by colleagues, fellow scientists, who indicate to us gaps that we have overlooked or scientific literature which has not been uh, considered in crafting the assessment. So this expert review is actually absolutely crucial to the quality, to ensure the quality and integrity of the report. At the moment, the lead authors are in the process of writing the second order draft. The second order draft is due on August 10 and will consider, hopefully, the most important published or submitted papers by the 31st of July this year. So scientific results that are available and have been submitted to peer-reviewed journals can be considered in the second-order draft. The second-order draft again goes out for review. That expert review starts on October 5, 
and it at the same time also goes out for government review. So we get two sets of comments for the second order draft, which are then the basis for the amendments into the final draft, which again goes into a government review, and the whole cycle is then closed with the approval of the summary for policymakers and the acceptance of the report. We foresee this for the first working group on the physical science basis to happen at the end of September 2013. So you see, yes, it's true, the writing of this report is done by an elected number of scientists, not a small club, as I indicated, but over 800 people. In our case, Working Group 1, over 250 people. Um, but it goes out, it reaches out to the community several times, and I would argue that this document is better reviewed than many scientific papers that appear in the peer-reviewed literature. The assessment report actually consists of various elements. Uh, first of all, the core of it is the report, which we target at around 600 pages, but uh, I'm pessimistic that the uh, enthusiastic colleagues actually stay to this limit, and I foresee a larger number than that. But it should still be a manageable number to be bound by, uh, into a volume by Cambridge University Press. Um, out of the report, we uh, construct a technical summary, which I always call a distillation process. Try to distill the material into something more manageable, about 70 pages, including technical figures where we um, provide a, a rapid overview of what we have learned, what we have assessed in the report, which contains all the details, literally thousands of references. But of course, this is not something very useful for a busy policymaker and a policymaker who is far from the science. And therefore, a summary for policymakers is also written, which is basically <clears throat> the top distillation um, a product out of this multiple process. We aim at about 15 pages with uh, very few carefully selected figures. Now this is the process for our working group. Working groups two on vulnerability and ecosystem responses and working group three on mitigation. They have exactly the same process, only a little bit later in time. So they go through their own distillation. And at the end, once each summary for policymaker has been approved, there is also a synthesis report uh, where um, all the working groups together combine their result in a synthetic way and put them together. So let me now come to three examples of what I call successful communication by IPCC. And uh, one person here is in the audience. Uh, we sat through uh, a number of nights where we thought hard how to encapsulate complex scientific information into one sentence which is non-technical and yet not too trivial. One of these sentences is here. Probably you've heard it already. Warming in the climate system is unequivocal. 
I must say this sentence has never been challenged, even in the fiercest storms over IPCC. This sentence has never been challenged because what you see here is multiple lines of independent high-quality evidence. The increase of global mean temperature over the past 150 years, superimposed on natural variability, of course. The long-term increase of sea level measured since 1880, unequivocal, and the measured decrease of snow cover. The combination of these time series is really important because it covers various components of the climate system. The atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the cryosphere. And they all show a physically consistent behavior if it gets warm, the water is expanding, the glaciers are melting, sea level is rising. If it gets warm, snow is receding. This all is encapsulated in this one sentence, warming in the climate system is unequivocal, and of course it goes on to inform about the various changes that occur in the climate system. The second sentence and uh, Miles will remember that one. Continued greenhouse gas emissions would cause further warming and use many changes that would very likely be larger than those observed. Um, a sentence that combines different things, but they all talk to these scientific figures which combine terabytes of information out of climate model simulations by 16 different climate model centers around the world. The top showing the warming at the end of the 21st century in a high emission scenario, and the bottom showing the change in precipitation at the end of the 20th, 21st century using a medium scenario. Again here, note that we actually use the calibrated language, very likely. And that in itself would be a discussion that could fill an evening to what extent actually the receiving end of our information is capable to take this as a serious message. We've received many criticisms, I believe, that it is too weak a statement because very likely for some years at least means, oh, it may happen or it may not, but it's very likely, but you know, there's still a good chance that it may not be the case. This one is the most recent example, and I show it because <clears throat> we are quite proud that we were able to convince the policymakers, who are not scientists, that there is value in very complex information, and that this complex information can actually be conveyed both graphically and in words. This is out of the recent special report on extreme events. The title is too long and I always forget it, so it's just a special report on extreme events, in which uh, Working Group 1 was responsible for one chapter to um, assess uh, what we can say about the changes in, for example, heat waves, the changes in heavy precipitation, and other extreme events. When we started out with this um, graph. In the summary for policymakers, everybody said, well, you will not be able to pass this figure through the governments because it's far too complex. 
I countered that I have now heard for so many years that the policymakers A, want quantitative information, and B, they want regionalized information. They want to have an information where they can relate to their own region where they have to take decisions. What you see here is the change in the return time of extreme hot days. I won't go into the definition of that, but it's the return time, how often actually um, occurs a hot day during the year. And climate models today are capable to actually aggregate that information on a subcontinental level for different scenarios and different time horizons. The take-home message here is, which we packed into this statement, which actually can be read off all these little graphs for the regions, is that a 1 in 20 year hottest day is likely to become a 1 in 2 year event in most regions. And if you look at the numbers here, it's actually staggering. You're increasing the frequency of a certain type of extreme event by a factor of 10. This is contained in this statement, a statement which was accepted based on the scientific assessment by the governments. Let me now come to the conclusions. And these are, I would say, specific to communicating climate uh, change science. And that is, we are operating, unfortunately, in a highly politicized environment. And I think you can appreciate that very well. Um, even I, at the University of Bern, am confronted with regular Freedom of Information uh, Act requests that are sent to us by the UK to make a statement on whether or not IPCC feels comfortable to uh, a certain document to be released or not. So for every single of these requests, we have to um, answer, and uh, quite uh, some hours go into um, looking for, uh, into addressing uh, these problems. So we are operating in a highly politicized environment, but I think we have to live with it, and certainly a good recipe is to stick to the facts, to remain calm, and not to be enticed to uh, reactions that in the end turned out to actually counter fire. I think the topic becomes more and more difficult for a simple fact, for a simple reason, and that is that the scientific evidence for man-made climate change becomes more and more evident. You look at all the compartments in the climate system and you can measure and you can um, quantify the changes that have taken place. And I would um, actually say that the more evident it becomes, the stronger the voices of the so-called deniers or mergings of doubts become. Um, it's become a policy to actually sow doubt, to say, ah, oh, but I know a colleague who said it may just not be like that, or there are some large uncertainties, or the measurements are not correct. That is already sufficient to actually influence the political debate, because when it comes to voting for or against something, just a little doubt will actually 
make you stick with the status quo. It's a very efficient way of actually putting a break on progress. I am firmly convinced that these intergovernmental assessments that we are doing for climate science now, it's a tradition uh, with a lot of experience for the past 22 years, are essential to deal with problems that have a global impact and with problems specifically where science can say something, where science can contribute some objective information. And it's just heartening to see that the model of IPCC has now been adopted to address another important uh, problem of global scale, and that is biodiversity. So an intergovernmental panel on biodiversity has been formed uh, just very recently. I'd say that to date, the IPCC assessments for the way how they are set up, for the way they are carried out, and for the most important ingredient of it, and that is the scientific community who contributes to it, are the most effective scientific information on climate change, but only under one proviso, and that is if we are able to provide rigorous, and now I've lost it, sorry about that, uh, let's go into it again. There we are. If we are able to provide rigorous, robust, transparent, and comprehensive information for the public. With that, I'd like to close and just say we need to communicate the different possible futures, but the choice that is made by everybody of us. Thank you very much. <laughs>